Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast. This is episode 47, the first one of the 2022 season. And I'm excited to announce that City of Hope, one of the nation's leading cancer institutes in the United States, is sponsoring us this year. Now, today we'll talk about overthinking. What causes overthinking? How to identify overthinking and how to stop overthinking. Now, our guest today is a New York Times bestselling author of seven books. He's an Inc. Magazine top leadership speaker and has spoken to hundreds of thousands of people at conferences and companies around the world. His name is John Acuff. And as you'll see, John has a unique blend of humor, honesty, and hope. Together, we'll talk about his latest bestselling book, Soundtracks, The Surprising Solution to Overthinking. It's an outstanding read. Pick up a copy. See, our conversation today is going to make you reflect about your life and just how we overthink so much and how we can avoid it. So before we start, click the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glen Yopis. Let's get started. The 2022 season of Personalization Outbreak Podcast is brought to you by City of Hope a world leader in the research and treatment of cancer, diabetes, and other life-threatening diseases. City of Hope has been ranked among the nation's best hospitals in cancer by U.S. News and World Report for over a decade. Learn more about City of Hope at cityofhope.org. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Joe, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Uh, I need a lower bar. That was a little too high. I like it. Like, he's okay. He's not that funny. And then I get to leap it. That's a pretty high, pretty high bar, Glenn. Hey. Right out of the gates. Hey, listen, uh, you wouldn't be on this show if you weren't a high. <laughs> That's great. I don't do low bar. This is the Glenn show. So pump the brakes. It's all high bar. Let's no, go. No, no, no. This is actually <laughs> your show. Because in, in the age of personalization, it's not about me. It's about you. So and, it's not, yeah, it's not it, called the Glenn show. No, 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 no. In, in <laughs> fact, what, what, what's, what's interesting about our show and especially going now into season three, uh, John, is that we've reached um, a time in society where, I mean, there's a lot of division. Uh, there's a lot of hope for unity. Um, I feel like we've hit a reset button and people are still set back in their own ways instead of finding ways to move forward. And one thing about your book that really excite, was I was excited about speaking with you today is explain to us, why do people have this tendency to overthink? I mean, look, I'm guilty, uh, but why is it? Why do we overthink, especially at a time where we need more focus than ever before? Well, I think one thing, it's very human. I think um, like overthinking and Netflix are what separates us from the animals. Like, I just think it's a, it's a very human thing. The PhD, this guy, Mike Peasley, and I, when we did the research study, we asked 10,000 people if they struggle with overthinking, and 99.5% of people said yes. 
So if you're listening, automatically know you're not the only one. One of the biggest lies with things like overthinking, perfectionism, not living up to your full potential, whatever, is that you're the only one. Everyone else has it all together. Everyone else has the how to be an adult manual. You're the only one who didn't get it. So hopefully that's the first comfort is, wow, we all do it. Why we do it more now than I think we've ever done it before is because of the last two years. 2020 was catnip for overthinking. Um, think about this, Glenn. For the first 99% of your life, you never had to think, wait a second, is this an up aisle or a down aisle in this grocery store? You never once for the first 99% of your life had to judge up or down on an aisle of chips. But now because of the pandemic, everything has an extra layer of thought. So I think we're prone to do it anyway, because we have these amazing, beautiful thinking machines called brains. But then I think the last two years were fuel for overthinking. And that's why it's been really fun to talk about this concept to people, to help them figure out, okay, what are the soundtracks I'm listening to? Are they the ones that are, that are going to help me the most going forward? Or are they actually holding me back? So tell us about this concept of soundtracks. I know we talked about it earlier uh, before we started the show, but what, what's this whole concept about? Because I know that there's internal and external factors that can influence our soundtrack. A hundred percent. So it's just my phrase for a repetitive thought. So I've heard people say a thought is like a leaf on a river, car on a highway, cloud in the sky. But for me, it's a soundtrack. And I picked that thought because a soundtrack has the power to change and shape the entire moment. And often we don't even notice it. So what I believe is that your repetitive thoughts become your personal playlist. So the things you think about over and over again become part of your personal playlist. And so, for instance, if you got fired from a job and were told you're not a good leader, guess what you're going to hear the next time you get up for a leadership opportunity? I'm not a good leader. That's a broken soundtrack that you're going to be listening to if you're not careful. And so you have a soundtrack for every person in your life, for every opportunity, for certain cities, for projects, for sales, for you know different jobs. And so... What I wanted to help people identify with is, wait a second, wait a second. What am I listening to? Is it what I want to listen to? If it's not, what can I do about that? Because what you find when you study mindset, and that's the problem is most of the time when you study mindset, it goes so fuzzy, so holistic right away. You know, we were both at a Range Rover event and I knew if I roll into a Range Rover audience, which is a high performing audience and go, just change your thoughts for the universe and you'll feel better. Like that's not productive. They want to know, what do I do with this on a Tuesday? What do I do with this when I have a negotiation? And so what you find when you study mindset is your thoughts turn into your actions, which turn into your results. And there's a great temptation to overfocus on the results and not, never change the underlying thoughts, and you don't get long-term results. Well, John, you've just fed right into what this podcast is all about. And it's how do we find this balance between standardization and personalization? Yep. Standardization where the institutions have defined uh, the way individuals should think, and personalization, how individuals actually want to influence um, an organization's mission and its future. And you've really revealed why we're, we've historically been so stuck in standardization. We've been exposed to this understanding that you need to fit inside the box and stay in your box doing what you've been told to do. And when we live that way in our day of work, how do people actually get inspired to innovate anything? It seems to me that they would be overthinking why they have been stifled for so long because it's that limitation that's not allowing them to grow and evolve. What's, what's going on here? 
Well, the the soundtrack they listen to in those moments um, is what's the point? That's an apathy soundtrack. So if you have ideas, individual ideas, but you're running into a wall of standard soundtracks, you, if you're not careful, if you don't find a way to push back on that, if you don't find a way to dig under that, go around that, whatever, you get stuck with a sense of what's the point? I'll give you some examples. We never reach our goals, so why do we set them? That's a apathy soundtrack. Hmm. You know what? We've got a leader who's you know he has huge goals, and then we never make them. So I don't want I don't trust the next one because a goal is never just a goal. A goal is always a promise. So when a leader makes a goal, they're making a promise, and if they don't make that goal, if they don't keep that goal, they've broken the promise. And over time, again and again and again, you start to doubt the next one, the next one, the next one. So you get to a place of well, what's the point? And when people feel powerless to change an environment because of it's standardized, they start to go, well, it's just the way it's going to be. Um, it is what it is. That's a, that's a, like, there's nothing I can do to change the system. Um, or they eventually take those ideas somewhere else. You don't want your best ideas left in the parking lot. As a leader, you don't want people to leave the best parts of themselves before they come into your building. And so unless there's an environment where they can do that and share ideas, then you, you, you're essentially employing fractional people. 30% of that person's coming in. Well, and that's why most people are lucky to operate at 40% of their full capacity at work. So what does a leader do to help change the soundtrack? Well, there's three, there's three questions I encourage leaders to ask. Um, the first question, because sometimes a leader needs to ease into the idea of a soundtrack and a story is a nice on-ramp. You can start with a story because everybody knows how to tell a story. We've all heard stories. So what I'll say is the first question you ask at every team meeting is, what's a story you heard from our customers or our clients this week? What's a story? Because sometimes when you're moving quickly, you run right by stories. Amazing things are happening and you're not picking them up as a leader because you're hustling so hard. I'll give you an example. I was speaking to a big healthcare company and I was doing a, a phone call with them about a month before the event so I could really ask them some questions so I could super serve the audience. And so I said to them at the beginning of the call, has there been anything amazing or interesting that's happened in the last year? And they said, really? Not really. And I said, are there any stories, any soundtracks? And they're like, no, not really. So we talked for an hour. And at the end of the hour, one of the executives on the phone goes, you know, wait a second. Um, you mentioned that has anything happened. We actually created a cancer medicine that was so successful and saved so many lives that the people whose lives it saved got together on a Facebook group and they pulled their money and they, they paid for a billboard next to our corporate headquarters to thank us. That happened. And I was like, that's an amazing story. And so the first question is, what's the story we heard from the people we're serving? Second question is, what's the actual? Today, what are the actual soundtracks that we are listening to as a team? And, the le and as a leader, if you ask that question and the first thing you get is compliments, they don't have psychological safety yet. If you as a leader say, hey, I want to improve this part of what we're doing. I don't want us to be standardized because I see you as individuals and there's parts of you that are only 40%. So what can we do? If the first thing they do is compliments, you go, everything is good. You're such a good leader. You have such great hair. Like your eyes are like the ocean on a windswept night. Like they're not there yet. You're going to have to ask multiple times to even give them permission to bring those parts in. The third question, and an example of that would be the most useless question asked in America right now is at restaurants when they say, how was everything tonight? The manager barely stops walking, barely stops walking, says that, you know what you're supposed to say. Everything was amazing. They keep going. I was at a restaurant. There were eight of us there. And the manager came over and said, hey, the end of the meal, there are eight of you. You ordered appetizers, you ordered drinks, you ordered desserts, you ordered entrees. Something wasn't perfect tonight. What wasn't perfect? That was a real question. So if leaders want real answers, they have to ask real questions. 
Um, and they have to create a space where it's safe to give a real answer. I once had a manager where I was managed, she managed me and a graphic designer. We were the only two direct reports. So every time it was time to fill out in a performance review of her, we knew what we were supposed to say. She's amazing. Because it was said to be anonymous, but if there's only two people, it's not hard to figure out, hey, I think maybe John said this thing, or maybe Chris said this thing. So like, that wasn't real. There was, that was not an environment for real feedback. So you ask, are there any stories? What's the actual? And the third question is, what's the aspirational? If the actual is where we are today, where do we want to be a year from now? Where do, you know, what do we want to be said of this brand, of this team, of this company? Um, what are the soundtracks that are going to get us there so that they can turn into action so that we get those results? To me, those are three really simple questions and they open up dialogue. And my question is this, John, as good as those questions are, most people operate with broken soundtracks. Yeah. And so the reason I, I'm, re I'm reacting that way is that, look, we live in a world now, especially in the workplace, with more mass variances in people than ever before. But sure. yet people aren't accepting difference. They're accepting sameness. And so there's a conflict here. Yeah. So we, but here's the here's the conflict. You have to show the value of difference. Like you don't fight for difference. You show the reward of difference and then you build your way there. People don't change because it's noble. They don't change because they should. They don't change because they're disciplined or willpower or grit. They change because the reward of changing is bigger than the reward of staying the same. So most leaders, if you come in and go, hey, we got to be different. We got to be different. What's in it for me? If you're in sales for an hour, you know the first question you better answer is, what's in it for me? And so if I was a leader and I was like, wow, we don't have enough difference in our culture for whatever reason, I would first figure out the value systems of the people I'm trying to get to change, and then I would present in their value system. I think one of the biggest mistakes we make in corporations, whether you're leading up or leading down, is we try to make somebody else chase our value system. Exactly. Or we communicate in our value system, and then we're confused. That doesn't motivate them. So I think that's a big part of it is going, if we're diverse, if we expand the seats at the table for people that usually don't get a seat at the table, if we do the work of individualization, Here's what's going to happen. Here's the promise of what will happen. And it's worth the journey versus we got to take this journey because it's the right journey to take. Nobody, nobody goes on that adventure. So do you think people are afraid to change, John? Yes, of course. But, 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 but I know they've said that change is, I know that a lot of people are afraid, but more today than ever before. I mean, it seems like people don't want to stretch themselves to see what's possible. They feel so suppressed because they're living this broken soundtrack. I mean, we can't, con this is unsustainable. What do we do? Yeah, I mean, people, like, here's the thing. Part of it is the comfort zone is terrible marketing. Like, it sounds like, of course I don't want to leave this. I like being comfortable. And people are like, just get outside your comfort zone. To what zone is that? The uncomfortable zone? The miserable? Like, no thanks. And so, again, it gets back to that. But why? Why am I going to change? Like, that's the thing. Like, people don't, like, Say you play a new board game. The first question you ask is, well, how do I win? You don't go, I'm going to play the board game because I believe in change and I want to stretch myself. No. Like, so the first question about, okay, why are they going to change is, well, why would they change? And then you have to create a compelling enough vision that they go, oh man, if I do this, this part of my life changes and I get to be part of this. Like people change, you know, primarily by two ways. Like they have a crisis. They have like, they lose a job, they lose a spouse, they, they have to change cities, whatever. Or they have a compelling enough goal that makes them go, 
I ran the cost benefit analysis. I ran the ROI. I am going to change that. Like we all know that if you don't smoke, like you have better health long-term. We all know if you don't eat certain types of food or if you do weight work, all the like, but that doesn't motivate me. I'm in my mid forties. If you said to me, John, you really got to get outside your comfort zone and do more weight training because it'll be long-term cardiac health. <laughs> Boring. But if you say to me like, hey, let's figure out what your value system is and then tie that into the work you're going to have to do because you're going to be uncomfortable, then I'm willing to do that. But yeah, people don't on their own without incentive just decide I'm going to I'm going to change because I should change. Like nobody does. That never works long term. So, so, John, let's get back to the book here. What are the dangers of overthinking? What are the dangers? Well, the dangers are it steals time, creativity and productivity. So overthinking slows decisions, it complicates systems, and it makes you miss opportunities. Um, so, you know, on a practical level, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I talked to um, a manager who got fired 12 years ago. And he said, now, he said, in that moment, I started to think every time I saw a door close for a meeting I wasn't in, maybe I'm going to be fired again. I checked the agenda, who was in there, the role, why wasn't I in there? Let's say he only does that for 10 minutes a day, five days a week. He only sees one meeting he's not in probably more, but let's say it's one. That's 50 minutes a week. Doesn't feel like a big deal. Until you average it out over 12 years, it's 62 eight-hour workdays. That's a lot of time he's donating to that. And uh, you know, a financial example, and I think I shared this one at Range Rover, was a guy named Sal St. Germain in the research study in Hawaii said, our team felt handcuffed. Every team that has a parent organization at some point feels handcuffed. They go, if the people above us, if the suits, whatever, understood us, we could do so much more. We could run so much faster. And they felt handcuffed. And Sal decided, I'm going to go ask, is that true? That's one of the questions I teach people to ask. Is it true? So he went to his manager and said, hey, is it true that we're handcuffed and you're holding us back? And the manager was shocked and said, no, we, we look at you as the experts. You're in the field. You're in the trenches. We want to equip and empower you. Tell us what you need. We're waiting for you to tell us what to do so we can all sprint. Sal said that changed us from being a team of victims into a team of partners, which is a nice feel-good moment. But where it gets really interesting, it's Sal, I said to him, did that help you financially? Like, can mm -hmm. we tie some real finances to that question? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, it did help us save $14 million over the next five years, wow. asking that question. So that's the kind of thing, it's expensive financially, and it's expensive, you know, with, um, with your time, but it's also expensive for morale. Because all culture is at a company is a group of soundtracks people are listening to consistently. And often, they're accidental. They're old. They've, they've just, you know, one of the things I just read recently um, in a book called Beautiful Constraint was that the size of the, the fuel tank for the space shuttle had, it was limited to four feet, eight inches. And the reason it was limited was because that's the size of the railroad that brought it there. And that mm -hmm. railroad was built against British specs that were built against Roman roads. So somebody in ancient Rome set the width of a road that then determined the size of a fuel tank on the space shuttle. And so you talk about a soundtrack, like no one ever was like, hey, I know this soundtrack is, this is how big they can be, but can we question that for like a second and go, why is the fuel tank this big? And, and then pull the thread on that to see if we're behaving against a soundtrack that started 500 years ago, a thousand years ago. Unbelievable. Well, and this kind of leads me to, what are the questions that people uh, should ask about their own thoughts. Yeah. So if you want to identify a broken soundtrack, 30 second activity, write down a desire. 
write down a dream, write down a goal. It can be, I want to move to North Carolina. It can be, I want to start a podcast. It can be, I want to write a book. I want to get a promotion. Write it down and then listen to your first thoughts. Listen to your reaction because every reaction is an education. So when you write down, I want to write a book, are your first thoughts, the first soundtracks you hear, you should do that. You're the best one to do that. No one's written a book like that. You're well-equipped to do that. Or are they, who are you to do that? Nobody would read that anyway. Smarter people have already written that book. You're not qualified. If they're not positive, you might want to ask them three questions. Number one, is it true? Is the thing I'm telling myself about myself true? Um, one of the greatest mistakes you can make is assuming all your thoughts are true. And we do that because our thoughts are delivered in the voice we're most familiar with, which is our own. You've heard your voice more than any other voice in history. So we tend to believe it's true, even though it's told us plenty of lies. <laughs> Second question, is it helpful? Is it helpful when I listen to this thought over and over again? The reason you got to ask a second question is some things are true, but they're not helpful. Is it true that guy could be fired again? That manager I mentioned? It is. It's true of everybody. But is it helpful? Is it helpful to his day for him to spin on that soundtrack and give 62 eight-hour workdays worth of time to that thought? Of course not. Third question, is it kind? If I said it to a friend, would they still want to be my friend? And that one is based in a bunch of research that Google did around the concept of psychological safety, that we need psychological safety in order to be our most creative. And so if you can't say yes to, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it kind? You should ask yourself, why am I listening to this thought again and again and again? And what if I could retire it? John, I think you've helped me understand the question I've been grappling with for a long time. And that is, why are we accepting incrementalism and just being okay with being a little bit better rather than transformative leaps? And you know, in corporate America, Everything's about being in transformation mode. But I'm realizing now why we never quite get there. Because we play off of a broken, outdated soundtrack that we think is still important, but it lost its relevancy years ago. Why well, and no, one, and no one stopped to say, wait a second. And the other thing is that, Glenn, you, unless there's a process, it doesn't happen organically. So think about it this way. If you, let's say you, you know, gain gain half a pound every month for, for a year. Like you go, ah, what's the big half a pound? You barely notice that. It's like X amount of ounces, a couple of sodas, whatever. You do that over a year, it's six pounds. You do that over 10 years, it's 60 pounds. You look up and you're like, where did this 60 pounds come from? The same thing happens at companies. A little bit of tech irrelevance, just six ounces, just half a pound of, of like eight ounces, whatever of tech irrelevance over time is massive. But the problem is we don't have a process where at the end of every year, end of every quarter, what if you said, okay, hey, we're going to do a quick check. Is there anything that's out of date in our thinking, in our systems, in our processes? Hey, 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 this is kill the sacred cow session where like, is there anything we want to call in the question? Is there anything we're doing? Is there anything we're believing that stopped being true two years ago? And you go, okay, well, let's have, you know, but there's not a system for that. Then you end up going, I hope somebody brave will say something, but I hope somebody brave will say something isn't a system. So you're, you're missing, you, like if you create a space where people can do it and say, okay, we know unless we're deliberate, we're going to lose our tech focus. Like, mm. here's the thing you have to remember. Nothing gets better accidentally. Nothing gets better accidentally. I've never met somebody that said, yeah, I accidentally got in shape. You know, I was, I was busy like binge watching Netflix. I looked up and I was doing burpees. I don't even remember getting off the couch and I was like doing an ultra marathon. Or like, I've never met somebody that said, I've never met another author that said, 
yeah, I just kind of accidentally wrote a whole book. Like, I don't even really remember sitting down and like being deliberate. It just all of a sudden I had a book. Like, it's never that way. And the same is true with relevancy. The same is true with your tech approach. The same is true with individualization versus standardization. Like, unless you're deliberate, it won't organically happen. Like, things devolve. Marriages. No marriage ever gets better organically. I've never met somebody who said, yeah, we never worked at it. Like we were never deliberate. Like my wife and I just kind of did our own thing. And then we ended up with this really strong, really healthy marriage. Marriages go, marriages by nature split apart unless you're working them together. That's just how life goes. Well, you've, you've convinced me that most people don't have focus because yeah. if we did, we'd all know our soundtrack and we'd know what to do with it. And we know how to help mobilize other people because of it. So close us with how do we get more focus? Because right now, I just feels like everybody's just all over the place, John. Well, I mean, I think I'd say start small. I think I would say start really small with focus. Um, the problem is when people, people try to go from all or nothing. Like a lot of people are neutral or nitro. My daughter said to me one day, Dad, you're either OCD or no CD. She was <laughs> saying I didn't have a middle gear. So I would say start small. Start with something, you know, reclaim 10 minutes. Um, you know, find a 15 minute chance to walk around the block. Don't go from I'm not doing anything to I have to do everything because that sets you up for failure um, right away. I mean, we we did a big study where we had 900 people for six months as they worked on their goals. And we studied what does it take to really finish a goal? And we had people cut their goals in half in the middle of the goal because most people overestimate. And the people that did were 63 percent more successful. That's how wrong they had been about the size of it. So if you said to me, what's one thing I would say, reclaim 15 minutes. Um, just, you know, set a timer like here. I have a timer that I use this. Um, if I set it to, I can set it to like 15, put it on my desk. And like, if I need to focus on something, I turn off the internet, it ticks down 15 minutes and, and I, and I do that. I love so, that. so for me, like, and then give yourself some grace, like goals are hard because Netflix is easy. Like there are scores of people whose job is to distract you. Like the odds are stacked against you. Like they, they've never been. Well, and this so, is the point, John, is that we don't seem to get out in front of anything because we're always trying to catch up. And another key learning I got out of you today is that we need to take more time to reclaim the things that we've lost from not only our own broken soundtracks, yeah. but those from the from but those from the people that we associate ourselves with. Sounds to me like we've got to reclaim a lot. Yeah, I mean, and again, though, I think it can start in small ways. Um, okay, so here's, you know, this is this is silly, but like one of my, I have a list of a handful of things I do every day, just small actions, because I really believe that small actions stack over time. So like, this is my small action chart. So I know, okay, I'm going to work through this. One of them says um, phone uh, in office. That means I leave my phone in this office when I go to bed. My, my phone doesn't come to bed with me because I know I don't have the willpower, Glenn, to not scroll forever. I don't have the willpower to not watch Instagram or YouTube or like, like go down some rabbit trail. Where I'm like, I do want to watch a YouTube video about Singapore's number one stingray dealer. This guy breeds stingrays. I didn't even know that was a thing. Like I got to know, I got to watch 11 minutes of that. So I don't have that willpower. So instead of beating myself up about it or coming up with a system, I just leave it in this office. And here's the crazy thing. I don't use my phone when it's 40 feet away from me. Like, wow, that's a crazy, you know, so for me, yeah. that's a simple reclaim thing. I'm reclaiming a little bit of sleep at night. Not crazy. I'm not one of these dudes that gets up at like 2 a.m. and then does like a Mark Wahlberg workout. Like, I just know 
I sleep a little, go to bed a little earlier if my phone is in a different room. That's not a massive thing, but it's something that does change. Look, at the end of the day, I think we can all agree, John, that your work is so important. Uh, the things that you've taught us today um, are just were unimaginable. I mean, such simple concepts that can help us go so much further in our lives, in our work, in how we lead. And again, I'd just like to recommend everybody get a copy of this book. John's a good friend. He's a great author. And boy, as you've experienced today, he's going he's gonna to continue to make you think. John, I really appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for being on the show. Really, yeah, really thanks for having me, Glenn. It. Listen, and as we always close the show, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. Do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thank you, John. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution. Learn more about City of Hope at cityofhope.org.